Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akhil Amar and his National Constitution shirt. Hello, Akhil. Oh, good. I was wondering, I was just trying to get right in the frame so that my head didn't get cut off, but you, you could see my National Constitution Center swag, which I, I got a couple of weeks ago down in Miami. Thank you, Jeff Rosen. Thank you, National Constitution Center. And I see it's got a little subtitle there. I see it says President's Council. I thought you were a member of the President's Council on Physical Fitness or something like that, uh, you know, along with, with the athlete of the day. So, <laughs> Not me. I'm <laughs> moi. Okay. Well, you know, today uh, I realize that we have to, as we as we do these podcasts, we have to give some personal updates because I got my haircut this morning, and my uh, uh, the, the the gentleman that I've known for many years, Roberto, who's cut my hair, does a great job. He said, uh, "How was your root canal?" <laughs> I said, "How'd you know about my root canal?" And, and then said, you asked him, and you asked him why. You know, he knew that. How he knew right, that, right? And he says, "Because I listened to the podcast." So uh, anyway, the answer is I didn't have a root canal. I'm going to have a crown instead. So good news. And I got my root canal therapy, and I have my temporary, and I'm going to get my permanent. Um, and uh, so onward and upward. Yeah. So now people will be correct when they say that listening to America's Constitution is like pulling teeth. Um, so. And I'll be able, Andy, to properly once again chew you out yes. <laughs> when, when the need arises. Okay. Well. All right. So today we've got a lot on on our plate. We hopefully haven't bitten off more than we can chew, and uh, that's it for. Okay, we have to stop. Yes, that's, that's the end. <laughs> that's the end. Okay. Um, so we're going to, uh, and of course we're going to lay out this uh, this plan, and then we'll probably do half of it. But uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the mayor of New York and what he had to say recently. We're going to take some of your questions. So let's start off with uh, with Mayor Adams. So recently he did something that mayors do, gave a speech, um, and it's New York, so he gave a, a speech to a, an interfaith breakfast, which included you know, uh, rabbis, uh, priests, Buddhist leaders, Muslim leaders, you name it. Um, and in, in this speech he said some things that, were, that got the attention of, uh, of the media. So let me read you a couple of his statements. Um, first of all, he's introduced by his closest aide, Ingrid Lewis Martin, who is herself a uh, chaplain. And she says that um, when she introduces him, she says, the mayor doesn't believe in the separation of church and state. And she says that the mayor was definitely one of the chosen. So those are some quotes from from her and so now the mayor takes the stage and he says ingrid was so right and then he goes on to say don't tell me about no separation of church and state state is the body church is the heart you take the heart out of the body the body dies then he goes on later to complain about the uh, supreme court and some things that it's done along these lines in particular, it says, he said, when we took prayers out of the schools, guns came into schools. So we could go on, but that's, you know, uh, that's some of what he had to say. So there's a bunch of issues teed up there, aren't there, Akil? 
there are and what he said was not quite right, but it's more plausible than some of our audience will understand. And in fact, this got a lot of attention in the New York Times. And actually, if I had to pick, you know, like truth or dare, Lady the Tiger, you know, between who got it more wrong, Mayor Adams on the one side or the New York Times attacking Mayor Adams on the other, I would say the New York Times got it more wrong constitutionally than Mayor Adams. So, wow, I, I, some of our audience is probably now seeing red or maybe seeing blue or, or something. So let's take a step back and begin to analyze. Let's start with this idea that he is introduced in New York City, which is an amazing melting pot entrepot. It has always been that way. It was originally in colonial times, early colonial times, known as New Amsterdam. And Amsterdam is a great entrepot. It's where the, the ships basically met and goods were transferred from one ship onto another ship. It's where you changed planes like Atlanta Hartsfield or O'Hare in the modern era. And New York is a, the great entrepot. It's where the mighty Hudson River hits the great Atlantic Ocean. And from the beginning... It attracted people from all sorts of, of parts of, especially Europe, initially, after European contact, Columbus. So um, you have the Dutch, and you have the Swedes, and you have, this is early on, Germans, and then English, and Scotch, and Irish, and French Huguenots, French Catholics. New York, from day one, has been meeting place, gathering place of, of people of different languages, ethnicities, and uh, faith backgrounds and a lack of faith backgrounds. Uh, because later generations would deepen that. American Jews will come to uh, New York City. And that famous plaque on the Statue of Liberty is written by an American Jew. And it's where Italian-Americans at the turn of the 20th century will first arrive in America, at least if two is to be believed. That's an inside reference to the Godfather parts two. It's where Vito Andolini from Corleone actually comes to the United States at age nine or 10 or 11. It's where my, my dad, bless his soul, and I'm going to go actually visit him a day after tomorrow out in California. He's 94 years old, and he came all the way from India um, and that's where he first arrived in New York City and saw the Statue of Liberty. And he came by water and it was from India through the Gulf of Aden and the Suez Canal and then to Sicily and then to Italy and then down to France and then over to England and then from Southampton over to New York City, to America, but through New York City. And so now we have actually in the later era, people from Asia, you see, as well as Europe coming okay, and they're Catholics. And they're Protestants of various sorts and Jews and Buddhists and, and Confucians and Hindus and Muslims and everyone in between and none of the above. Agnostics and proud atheists. And that's one of many things that I personally love about New York City. It's actually where all the peoples of the world come together. There are very few places in the world that are like that. That's why I spend one day a week actually in the great city of New York. Another place where in my, and, and that's where the UN of course meets and, and it is a, a genuinely international city. Another city where I would say North meets South and East meets West is my boyhood neighborhood, San Francisco. It's where great Atlantic culture 
meets a great Pacific culture. And along with the different ethnicities and languages come uh, a lot of religious diversity. And so it's always been. So so let's just start with that. Mayor Adams, an African-American, of course. I like the fact that he is addressing a religiously heterogeneous group. You don't get to be mayor of New York without doing that. That's for sure. Okay. For the okay, very so reason that just, you said. So, so point one. Okay. Now, he is being introduced as a person of faith, and he proudly wears that label. He doesn't say, that's not who I am. That's purely private. I can't talk about that. And that's the first thing that actually starts to offend folks in the New York Times, that someone who happens to hold public office is not treating religion as a purely private matter, but is openly presenting himself as always and everywhere, a whole person. And in Adam's case, that includes person of faith. Now, here's where things start to get interesting, because there are different understandings of church and state around the world and in America. Let's take the president of the United States today, Roman Catholic, proudly so, doesn't hide the fact that he goes to church and that that his faith is meaningful to him. Let's contrast him with the first major presidential candidate who happened to be Catholic running for president, Al Smith. And Al Smith loses, this is I think 1928 to um, Herbert Hoover, because he's perceived as too ethnic and too Catholic. You know, he's taking orders from the Pope, people think, okay? And having learned that lesson, the lesson of Al Smith, the next major American Catholic to vie for the presidency who wins, John Kennedy in 1960 says, yeah, I'm a Catholic and it has nothing to do with how I think or what I do. He's a separationist, modern day New York Times style, okay? I happen to be Catholic, but that has that's not it doesn't matter at all about what, how I really think about anything. And that's going pretty far in the direction of a, um, a separation, not just of church and state, but a separation within the breast, within the soul of someone who aspires to public office. And Adams is rejecting that. He's saying, I can't separate myself into two halves. I'm always May, I'm always Eric Adams. That's who I am. I, I can't get out of my own skin. And Eric Adams is, and at every moment always will be, a person of faith. And you can't, and this is the American understanding, prevent people of faith from seeking public office. That would be discrimination against them. And now, we haven't. I haven't said that government policy, regulations, laws, judicial opinions... Can, can be full of religious rationales. And I don't believe that. I'm saying human beings who happen to be government officials are also allowed to be persons of faith. And Adams is wearing that proudly. And that goes all the way back to the first presidential inauguration in which George Washington chooses to take his oath of office on a Bible. The, the Constitution does not prescribe that. And later presidents choose to add the words, so help me God, which are not actually in the Constitution. So here's the here are the rules in England. 
Well, where there are, there's not a separation of church and state, it's a theocracy of a certain sort. And the head of the state is also the head of the church. And that's what half of the crown episodes, you know, are all about, you know, because uh, uh, the, the Anglican church, oh, you know, King Edward VIII can't get a, a, you know, can't marry a divorcee and Margaret's going to have a lot of problems and Elizabeth and Philip could never get divorced. And, oh, this is going to be a huge issue with Charles and Diana, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in England, ever since basically the English Reformation, where the Anglican Church breaks away from the Catholic Church. Here are the rules in the Act of Succession, which prescri- and, and associated laws prescribing the coronation. You know, early Crown episode is about Elizabeth's coronation. It's an event in which presided over by an Anglican bishop or archbishop. The monarch must swear to be defender of the faith, and that's the Anglican faith, and. And the monarch must take an oath of office on a Bible, must swear on a Bible, and it actually must be a proper Protestant Bible, the King James Bible, so to speak, not a Catholic Douay Bible. That's English law. Now it goes um, it further has been for hundreds that. of years. It goes further than that. The, the, you know, the key moment is the anointing, and the anointing yes. takes place under cover where no one can see except you know, the archbishop and, and the monarch. And the idea is that this is just between the monarch and God, the, the archbishop standing in for God, uh, and, and the people aren't involved. It's it's you know and the holy oil and all of that and that mm-hmm. was that was a, a crown episode and it was all about the whole the holy oil. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not making that. So that's a society. Um, there are many societies in the world that are much more avowedly and openly theocratic because all of that is basically mainly the law of the crown. But in other societies, Sharia law societies, oh, Quran is binding authority for day-to-day behavior of everyone in the jurisdiction. Wow. Now, on the other side, just, okay, so so we, we have Sharia law in very strong form in some societies. We have a weak establishment, established church, theocracy of a certain sort in Britain. A lot, and the reason it's weak in part is there's an established church, but there's also a lot of toleration and free exercise for non-Anglicans, for for, for Catholics, for non-Anglican Protestants, for Quakers, then for all all sorts of um, other organized religions, and then for agnostics and atheists. Now, let me contrast. Okay, so we've got, on the one hand, the Sharia jurisdiction, in which there's strong establishment and not very much free exercise. And then there's England, where there's mild establishment and very robust free exercise. There's the United States, which actually has no established religion. So you can't, we don't require our presidents to be Anglicans or, or whatever. You don't have to say, so help me God, but you're allowed to say, so help me God. And you're allowed to be religious, even as you sort of enter political discourse. Now, moving further on this continuum toward, as it were, the left, you know, kind of the right um, uh, over toward the left, we have France. France is what the New York Times wants America to be, and America is not France. In France, they have a strong principle of 
secularism. They call it laicite, laicity. And it's a strong separation. They are reacting against a very, very strong established uh, ancien, a church in the Ancien Regime. And the French Revolution gives rise to a much more severe curtailment of the old privileges of the old established order. And in France, it's very bad form for anyone in political life to be open about his or her religion. You're, I guess, allowed to be religious, but you're not supposed to talk about it at all. It's, again, this principle of secularism or laicity. In France, there would be a real concern, honestly, if a preacher or a rabbi or an imam actually were to run for office and win office. Their idea of separation is priests can't be government officials. They should be actually excluded from officialdom in the same way. Let's just contrast it to American separation of powers. American separation of powers is if you're in the executive branch or the judiciary, you cannot be a member of the House or Senate. It's called the incompatibility clause. See, in a parliamentary system, the prime minister, the PM, is also an MP. You're in both branches of government. There's no strong um, strong separation between the legislature and the executive. And, in fact, in England of old, there was no strong separation of church and state. In fact, there are lords spiritual and temporal. And the, the Anglican church leaders, the bishops and the archbishops, actually have a formal part in government. They're part of lords spiritual, which is the counterpart to lords temporal. France moves from having a religious folk formally as such in the government to an almost prohibition of religious people in government. And that's what Mayor Adams is reacting against. He's saying, like, if I were a preacher man, I could still be mayor. Martin King, Martin Luther King, you know, by the way, shouldn't have been ineligible to run for office. Let's take someone even halfway between Martin Luther King and Eric Adams. Okay. And by the way, if you had ever asked Martin Luther King in the flesh to describe himself. I actually met Coretta Scott King, his widow. We both got honorary degrees together at Suffolk a long time ago. The event was actually in, it used to be called the old Boston Gardens where the Celtics play. And I, I looked up and actually, and I was on the Jumbotron next to Coretta Scott King. And John Kerry also got an honorary degree that day. But I, but I digress. But if you had asked Martin Luther King to describe himself he wouldn't have said, oh, I'm a civil rights leader, which is how he's described in all the textbooks today. He said, I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, first, last, always. Everything flows out of that. That's how he would self-describe. But he didn't run for office, but he was in public life. Now let's take someone, preacher man, who did run for office, indeed, who ran for the presidency, who was right next to Martin Luther King the day he died. His name is Jesse Jackson. Okay, and he ran for the presidency and he's not very different from Al Sharpton, as in now we're getting to, you know, to to New York, you know, the Reverend Al Sharpton. And he may have never run for office. I don't know. But, oh, he's in public life. And the French would be offended by all of that. They wouldn't want people openly religious to even talk politics. And they definitely wouldn't want church leaders, clergy, to actually hold government positions, even though they won them fair and square. 
that yeah, would offend it's... French sensibilities. Yeah, uh, and France that's are... the strong version of separation. We'll, we'll go through the New York Times article that the New York Times article actually likes. In France, it's not just a matter of running for office. I think the idea is that the public sphere in general is secular. Correct. So you can't wear a yarmulke to, to school, and you, you don't have a prayer before the soccer match. You know, and all or, of these or the veil, the burqa. In public, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't perform your religion publicly in any way. It should be kept in the closet, in private. Yes, very French sensibility. Now you see that this strong, strong, strong separationist idea, anti-establishment idea, if you will, can be intention with free exercise. If now I've got to actually, you know, keep it private. Oh, they'll let me pray, but only in my closet. You know, they'll let me wear a religious garment, but only at home. It's kind of, you know, so the French think, I guess you can have sex, you know, anywhere, but religion has to stay at home. Um, something like that. Okay. Um, you know, I think now, I'm joking there. a little bit. Um, now, to their credit, the French, who are, you know, I believe there's a lot of anti-Semitism in France. I, I actually believe this to be true and anti um, and Islamophobia, too. But to their credit, they've had a Jewish prime minister, Leon Blum, very secular Jewish prime minister, Leon Blum, who was their prime minister in the 19, late 20s, early 30s, I think. I'd have to look it up. And their current prime minister is Jewish. But you can't perform it. You can't be out about it. You're going to have to be closeted to a certain extent. John Kennedy style. Yes, I'm Jewish, but it doesn't matter. Or if it does matter, it's none of your business and I'm not going to tell you about it. Now, at the far end of the extreme, and here we come full circle in a way, because, you know, this is the far left in a way, but I think it's the far right. I think it's authoritarian would be regimes like the former Soviet Union, which in effect, prohibited religion. They, they, they were, their official established order was atheism. And I don't think that's so different, frankly, than establishing Islam. But it's affirmatively anti-religion rather than strongly pro-religion. I think some of this has to do with sources of authority and power and sovereignty because, you know, the, the uh, worries about Al Smith and to a lesser extent, you know, John Kennedy, you mentioned yourself, oh, is he going to take orders from the Pope? You know, who's, yes. you know, who's, who's sovereign here? Is, is, and, of course, Jews, there is no such hierarchy among Jews, but among Judy, in Judaism. But nevertheless, um, Jews are, are sometimes thought to, there's a worry that they're going to have, you know, dual allegiance. You know, they're going to be loyal to Israel before they're loyal to, to the United States or something like that. I say that as a, a Jewish man myself. Obviously, I don't believe that's the case. Um, but so, so I th it's interesting because that's, that's a difference between, let's say, a Catholic and a Protestant because the, the non-hierarchical, relatively non-hierarchical nature of, of Protestantism as opposed to Catholicism, you know, and you could see how that fits into the American, you know, political system. So when you have a politician like Eric Adams and he's saying things like, I was chosen by God to be the mayor of New York, well, that means the people didn't choose him, you know, and he's answerable to God. I mean, we want our politicians to be answerable to their consciences, but there's a limit, you know, beyond which we want them to listen to what we have to say also. 
Well, hang on on that. So I think you've identified two really important points. And then the third, I'm not so sure about. One, let's distinguish between religions that have strong connections to foreign entities or regimes, to Israel, to, which is a Jewish state, to the Vatican. So that raises national security, national security and foreign policy concerns. If your ultimate loyalty is to some other sovereign in, in the world, the, the Vatican states, actually the papal states at a certain point were uh, understood as a sovereign entity like Liechtenstein. That's one concern. You have an elite, your ultimate fidelity and allegiance is to some other Westphalian regime, to some other master. That's one idea in a world of competing sovereigns. Second idea that you articulated is, are you a member of a hierarchical religious um, regime or a very flat one in which everyone thinks for himself? If you're a part of a hierarchical regime, even if it actually the, the, the head of your church were clearly American, let's take, for example, the what some people think the Mormon church might be. Well, they're actually church elders and they tell others someone might think what to do. I, I, this, people did think this in the 1850s in America, just like they did think that the Catholics took their orders from the Pope. Here, it is not necessarily a foreign regime. Uh, Mormonism is actually American. The sacred tablets, the scriptures were actually, I think, unearthed in upstate New York, I believe. Still, yes, in American history, there's been a lot of prejudice and anxiety about certain hierarchical regimes that are seen as inherently religious regimes, anti Republican, because people aren't thinking for themselves. They're taking orders from some secret group, whether that secret group is a corporation or the slave power or the Catholic Church or the Mormon Church the or Freemasons. Um, um, it, 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 the Freemasons, excellent. Yes. You know, uh, um, Israel. Okay. Now, the third thing that you said is that, because I don't think what um, Eric Adams said worries me so much. He says, I answer to God. That's not answering to some foreign power, um, foreign sovereign. It's not answering to some hierarchical human entity. It's not that different from saying, ultimately, I have to answer to my own conscience. I am reminded, Andy, since you, you mentioned, you know, your, your, um, re religious uh, tradition. And we, we've talked about this before because you are really into, you know, great kosher food. Um, and you've brought me over the years, the best bagels and the best locks, you know, tissue thin slices. Which were not Dell's kosher, and, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, 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 <laughs> so it's not great kosher food, but I would say great Jewish style food. Okay. Now, when I'm growing up, um, you remember this because you and I are the same age. It was a spectacular, this is before I gave up red meat. For conscience reasons, if not, not, not maybe necessarily religious reasons. Uh, I used to love hot dogs and I especially loved Hebrew national kosher hot dogs. I wouldn't let my parents buy anything else because I thought they were the best. And you remember this ad. It's this character dressed up as Uncle Sam. And, and he says, the government lets us actually use meat filler. You know, we don't. The government lets us use certain chemicals. Um, we don't. You know, the government lets us do this. No, the government lets us do that. No. Why? Because we answer to a higher authority, you know, and then there's this rumbling from, from a, a thunderous rumbling from the heavens. And it's, you know, Hebrew national kosher hot dogs. 
Okay. So when he just says, I answer to a higher authority, that actually doesn't, I think, raise the two concerns that you properly identified as uh, as important ones. Yeah, except that that isn't exactly what he said. He said that that God chose him. That's a little different. But, you know, but at any rate, it's a sort of messianic, you know, uh, approach to things. It's it's a little bit uh, exclusionary in, in tone. Well, but, but so many people think they're special and they have a chosen mm. destiny. And so now we haven't talked yet about some of the other things that he said and about public schools and prayer in public schools. And we haven't talked yet about the New York Times essay that I'm reacting against. And I'll tell you why I think actually what the New York Times says in three or four places is is actually more wrong than right. And that Adams thus far in just saying, uh, you know, that I'm religious and I'm proud of it. And this ultra strict separation of church and state, don't buy it, fie on it. And in that, I'm actually with him. Okay, well, first of all, we should start with the headline. The headline is Adams Discussing Faith dismisses idea of separating church and state. Right. And I would say, you know, that's not man bites dog. That's dog bites man. That's, that's, I, I dismiss the, the strong idea of the ultra strong idea of a separation because the ultra strong idea is to repeat French laicity, secularism, that you can't be religious and even enter the public square. That's the, a very strong version. Or you can't be religious and run for office, a slightly different version. Or that you can't be religious and hold office and hold office as a religious person thinking religious thoughts. I reject all three of those French ideas. So he, and of course, the question is not just what what you reject, but what the Constitution requires. Or, or Correct. The Constitution rejects all of those ideas mm-hmm. and did so on day one when George Washington chose to take his oath of office on a Bible and was reputed by some to have said, so help me God. I used to think he said it, but I actually don't think he said it anymore. Maybe in another episode, I'll tell you, it took me a long time to to research all of this, why I don't think he said it. And even if he didn't say it, though, to repeat, he, he took his oath of office on a Bible. His first inaugural address is full of religious references and immediately afterwards, he troops over with most of the members of Congress for a church service across the street at St. Paul's Church. Private choices he made. Oh, and where did he do all of this, Andy? In the city of New York, which was the temporary capital. So this is an open public display of personal religiosity on the part of America's highest public official. Okay, so the article starts with basically what I had already read. It says that the, the breakfast began normally enough, is the way it puts it. Uh, a choir sound arousing, sang a rousing rendition of my country, tis of thee. Rabbi spoke, so did Buddhist and Muslim leaders. And then things and started... I love all that. You just repeat, I love that. And then things started to get surreal. Uh, the mayor's closest aide, and then the things that I said earlier. Um, okay, and then he says his his... He says, Ingrid was so right, Mr. Adams said, to the astonishment of some of the religious leaders who filled the New York Public Library's glass-domed reception hall on Fifth Avenue. So he says, 
Here's the quote. Don't tell me about no separation of church and state. Now he goes on, but let's just parenthetically insert that what he really means is don't tell me about about separation of church and state. Don't talk to me about that. Um, and to resume, he says, state is the body, church is the heart. You take the heart out of the, bo- out of the body, the body dies. I can't separate my belief because I'm an elected official, unquote. He continued over scattered applause. Right. So he's saying, I am always a religious person. That's who I am. That's who you elected. In a word, in a phrase, with that, he is telling us all he's no Jack Kennedy. Nor is he Lloyd Benson, for that matter. <laughs> um, he, but he says, when he's saying, don't tell me about se- separation of church and state, what he really means is not just I'm religious, but the state is religious. It can be religious, right? Because well, or the state doesn't have to be anti-religious. So let's just, um, Mm -hmm. so um, let's um, keep going. Then he said, because he says, I can't separate my belief because I'm an elected official. Okay. So then he said, he went on, then the article says he went on to suggest that his path to the mayoralty was divinely ordained saying that when he implements policies, he does so in a, quote, godlike approach, unquote. On that, here's a hypothetical. Suppose a public official says, I actually think the death penalty is bad policy. I also think it's, it's evil. It's, um, it's commanded by my understanding of the universe by my understanding of God and what he actually, she, it, they require of us. So if a governor or a president pardoned people, uh, commuted uh, death sentences to life imprisonment and did so openly and avowedly for spiritual reasons. I think that's what he, you know, uh, may have meant by godlike. Let, let me just try to render it in the most generous way I can. Would we think that that was improper? I'm not sure I would. Well, I think that when you when you state that approach, you know, the the many qualifiers that you threw in there, um, first of all, describing you know God with various genders and 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 so forth. There's a, a, a kind of a tolerance uh, that that you're expressing that mm-hmm. yeah yes I'm I'm using a religious approach but it's actually consistent with other people's religious approaches as well oh so you're Andy you're so you always pick up on everything so you're just right um, it's an easier hypothetical if. I admit I'm doing something for a religious reason, but I could translate it and render it in completely secular terms that are um, transparent and and non-superstitious and available to all. And that makes it easier by far to justify it. But I'm admitting because I want to be an honest public official. I'm doing this also for religious reasons because I can't separate it because I can't separate myself because I'm one human being and I'm actually always and everywhere, you know, a person of faith. And that's how many people of faith feel. 
And I wouldn't want to exclude them from the public square, from a public disc, you know, from from the beach, you know, because the French would want to exclude you from the beach if you're wearing your cross or your veil. And I would say, no, you know, you, you belong at the beach. By the way, a, a good French beach movie, if you've never seen this, Pauline à la plage, uh, Pauline at the beach. That's what I, all the French movies are actually about, you know, beaches and vacations, it seems to me. But anyway, I digress once more. So I wouldn't want to exclude you if you're religious from the beach, from political discourse, or even from office holding, from running for office and holding office, um, or even from religious decision making, if it can be translated into non-religious terminology right. um, and, um, uh, and and is justified without having to rely on religion. But but if you say, I admit that the way I think about costs and benefits and fairness and uh, and and right and wrong, all that's actually influenced by my faith tradition, but by my, think, my my conscience, by my beliefs. So I think what you're describing is a is an inclusive method of of decision making that you're going to include your religious beliefs, but you're doing it. You're sensitive to other people's religious beliefs. You're sensitive to secular beliefs. And earlier, when we were talking about the question, we don't that the American people have been wary of other forms of exclusionary uh, type incorporations of religion, like having an authority figure that's not elected, that one that an elected official is answerable to, like like the Pope or whatever. Here, the question is not are we excluding Mayor Adams, but is Mayor Adams excluding everyone else? And so he says a number of things, like where he says, church is the heart. You take the heart out of the body, the body dies. How does that, how would an atheist feel about that? Okay, that, that, that person would not be included in that theory of governance. Okay, because, um, just, just for example. Or, you know, God has appointed me to be the mayor, not, you know, the people didn't appoint me, God appointed me, you know, or don't tell me about church and the separation of church right. and state. All of those so, that you're rendering as claims about New York or the society, those are three me, me, me claims, actually. That's about him. Don't tell me. OK, he's talking about his body and his heart and who he is. And I think he's allowed to say, this is who I am. If you don't like me, vote against me. But I'm not going to hide who I am. I'm not Jack Kennedy. And if you ask me to, this would be like asking me to renounce my faith. I this would this is like he would say, I believe, um, Peter, who three times before the cock crowed, denied that he knew Christ. And if you're a Christian of a certain sort, you're told, don't, don't do that. You know, when asked, you know, fess up. Yes, I actually am a Christian. So I think that, uh, you know, that's an, one interpretation of what he said. I think my yeah, interpret- I'm trying to be as generous as I can. Yeah. He didn't write all this out. But, trying I- to, but I'm trying to see who he is. And he's coming out of the same black church tradition, I believe, as Martin King and Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton. Well, um, maybe so, but he's lived in New York for a long time, and that's not the rhetoric of, of the New York uh, religious community in general. And look, I think your interpretation— Al Sharpton is a member of the New York religious community. Yeah, but that's true, but uh, okay, point taken. But um, I think your interpretation is a reasonable one. I think my interpretation was a reasonable one. So the I point- hear you. No, and that's why this, this is why this is great. Now, I'll tell you one person whom I really respect— 
Um, his name is uh, the Reverend Barber. He's in North Carolina. He's a great civil rights leader. I met him at an event in Ohio. I met him at Oberlin, which actually was among the first racially inclusive colleges in, in America, and it was founded by people of faith. I believe it has a, a black woman as president. It did when I was out there. She actually was the mother, I believe, of triplets. Um, and I, I'm the father of twins. So we, we talked a little bit about that. But the Reverend Barber is doing, dare I say it, God's work in North Carolina, standing up for civil rights and voting rights. And this is that's more versus Harper stuff. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, so, what you know, I think that uh, there's stuff in this article that it's worth getting to. But I'm trying to present a, a case here where people might feel somewhat threatened by some of his his remarks. He's in a position of power. So, all right. So, if we return to the text of the article, um, it, now is where it gets into a little some some uh, some constitutional red meat here. Um, right. Even though you've sworn off uh, red meat, partially. <laughs> um, um, at uh, at another point, Mr. Adams seemed to suggest that it was a mistake for the Supreme Court to ban mandated prayer in public schools as it did in 1962. When we took prayers out of schools, guns came into schools, he said. Right, okay. so here's now, where he begins You're not going to let him get away with that one. No, so. here's where you get, I'll, I'll try to render it in the most generous way I can, but the 1962 case and its companion, I think it was the year before the year after, 61 or 63, the, the main cases of, Engel versus Vitale and Abington versus Shemp, which get rid of organized recitational prayer, sectarian prayer in the public schools. Those are absolutely correctly decided, 100%, rock solid, 9-0. And I say that as a person of faith, because I think the schools have no business whatsoever telling me what's the proper prayer and what's the non-proper prayer. Because if you do that, okay, whose prayer are we going to use? Are we going to use actually the King James version of uh, the Lord's Prayer or some other Christian version? And even if we're picking a Christian version, what about Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and people of uh, no faith and and people who are atheists? And now you say, oh, well, we're not forcing uh, people. Uh, The government's taking sides. The government as such, not an individual, but the school, the government, they're picking and choosing which uh, um, sectarian text, which religious text, which scriptural text is the right and true one and saying that's what the government itself, the state, is endorsing. And and if they didn't let you opt out, oh, my God, that's utterly totalitarian. And that's a violation of free exercise principles of religious liberty. They say, oh, we'll let you opt out. But in opting out, and we talked about this before, you have to stand up. You have to leave the room. Everyone knows you're the little Hindu boy. You're the little Jewish boy or, or girl. Um, the, you are being made to st- uh, stand up and stand out for your uh, religious belief. So that's where now, I, I totally lose him. And he would not have a single vote on the Supreme Court. Now, here's, you know, if this is what he really meant to say, and remember, none of this is is all scripted, then it's a little different. If you say that we we should prohibit actually silent prayer in the schools, this is the Wallace versus Jaffrey case from 1986. Oh, 
I don't have an objection to silent prayer precisely because I can think about God and you can think about baseball and Sally next to us can think about the devil and think heretical thoughts and no one has to stand out or stand uh, stand up and stand out. I do think Wallace versus Jaffrey was wrongly decided and I think it's ripe for reversal and I predict it will be reversed. I think the odds are more than 50-50 that it's going to be reversed in the next decade. That's where the Supreme Court is today and should be, that that Wallace versus Jaffrey went too far. You know, I think that uh, sometimes it's a question of what we're afraid of. Um, So I think, you know, you could have a moment of silence, and sure, I can imagine a moment of silence regime that doesn't actively promote religion, you know, and have a be a government endorsement of religion. I could imagine such a regime. But I fear that that's not the regime that would emerge. That instead what we would emerge is statements about the value of prayer or, say, you know, that, well, you don't have to do it, but here's why it's a good idea. You know, and think, things like that, that that I would find, you know, equally objectionable. Right. Then and, we're not objecting to the silent prayer. We're objecting to other things. Well, I object that- to silent prayer. I don't object to silence. <laughs> um, well, no, there's um, a difference. Yeah, no, no, you're right. It's a moment of silence. It might be, mora- you know, the court might actually, in effect, give, in the case that I'm imagining materializes, a kind of safe harbor Miranda warning. If you say the following words, they're okay. You may, but need not pray. I don't have a problem with that. That would, to me, violate the Constitution. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want the word prayer to be in there at all. I would want it to be something mm-hmm. like, you mm-hmm. may think about mm-hmm. anything you want during this time. This is a moment for you to think. By the way, of course, we have not just silent prayer, but spoken prayer and utterly permissibly every day, um, as long as it's not organized by the government. You know, I had friends who prayed before every exam. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, we're not prohibiting prayer. And some some of them, (laughs) I loved them, but they needed all the help they could get. Right, right. Right. We're not talking about prohibiting prayer. We're talking about prohibiting designating a time that the government yeah. says this is for prayer. Governmentally organized, that's a little different. Mm-hmm. But, of course, now the, the rest of this comment by Mayor Adams just is kind of in the unhinged uh, you know, world. The guns came into schools. I mean, it's not just... He says when we took prayers. First of all, he's wrong, just temporally. But also he's implying some sort of relationship between the two. So give me a break. Okay. I've gone as far as I can defending Adams, but I do want to now pivot and now go after your, your favorite newspaper. Yes. But uh, by the way, just parenthetically though, the next day uh, when asked about it, he denied that he had said that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There you go. A bridge to a bridge too far. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. So next paragraph, the phrase, this is the New York Times speaking now. Um, The phrase separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. But the First Amendment's statement that, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, unquote, has been widely interpreted to dictate such a separation. Ah, the passive voice has been widely interpreted. You know, mistakes were made. Has been widely interpreted by whom? Okay. Our audience needs to know, not by me. On the contrary, 
I have said emphatically in chapter five of America's unwritten constitution that the key concept is not that religion must in every way be walled out of and separated from school space, but rather that religious students must be treated equally with all others. In short, the watchword is not separate, but equal. So I actually say, gee, this phrase separation of church and state has not been a prominent feature of Supreme Court majority opinions for at least a quarter century. This phrase, wall of separation, and the citation to something that Thomas Jefferson said in a letter to the Danbury Baptist Church has also not been cited by any Supreme Court majority opinion in over a quarter century. I actually think Jefferson said a lot of things that aren't so sensible, truth be told, about nullification and secession, about the unconstitutionality of a bank, about the need to have a a constitutional amendment to acquire land by treaty. He then later sort of backed away from that. Jefferson said all sorts of unorthodox and I would say incorrect things. So yeah, there are a lot of people who say that and they're all paleo. And actually what the New York Times said is deeply misleading. The people who have actually talked about separation of church and state in the modern era have all been in dissent. Here they are. I'll tell you their names. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Sonia Sotomayor, John Paul Stevens, my dear friend David Souter, Elena Kagan sometimes, she's joined some opinions, Steve Breyer. And when I say my dear friend, I didn't mean by negative implication. Of course, I love Steve Breyer. He's going to be on the podcast. I I clerked for him. I have nothing but deep, deep, deep affection for Sonia Sotomayor. But they're the ones in the recent era, all of them in dissent who have actually used the meme separation of church and state and the specific citation, the the more elaborate metaphor of wall of separation of church and state, citing Thomas Jefferson. That's not where the Supreme Court is or has been for three decades. Of course, the fact that the Supreme Court hasn't been there hasn't stopped you before from feeling that the Constitution is there. Right. So, but when, you know, but, but now, you know, if I'm on the same side as the Supreme Court, then, you know, fine, who you got, you know, you know, on, on my side, we have me, you know, uh, and God, of course, <laughs> no, no, we have me um, and the Supreme Court. So she cites a whole bunch of folks and you know, not one of them is a constitutional expert in my view. Right. Well, so just, there's fighting words. So let's let's talk because she quotes these people. All right. Well, let's go through it. You know, the, let's see what what follows this statement. Yes. So, so she said the author says Mr. Adams' suggestion that he did not endorse the divide alarmed some New Yorkers in the audience, including Rabbi Abby Stein. She said that she and several people sharing her table had the same immediate reaction upon hearing the mayor's remarks on that topic. No, 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 no. Rabbi Stein said it was unhinged and dangerous of Mr. Adams to speak so dismissively about what she called such a critical tenet of American society. I respect people talking about using their faith to help people, said the rabbi, who met Mr. Adams in June 2018 when, as Brooklyn Borough President, he honored her and other LGBTQ activists 
during Pride Week. This wasn't that. Rabbi Stein noted that such rhetoric was especially harmful amid numerous instances of people citing their religious faith while targeting, for instance, drag queen story hours, including in New York City. I don't think that this helps, she said. Okay, now in fairness to her, she didn't write the article. I don't know what else she said and whether that fully captures you know, her entire perspective. I know that I've been quoted often accurately, but slightly misleadingly and out of context or incompletely in various stories. So I want to be completely fair to her. I just do want to say that, yeah, religion in America has been sometimes a force for great intolerance in public policy. It's also been a force for great inclusion in public policy. There were the abolitionists who believed that slavery ultimately was ungodlike, to paraphrase Eric Adams, that it was sin. The original abolitionists weren't particularly political. Their first idea was basically a moral reform crusade. Sin is separation from God. Slavery is sinful. You need to get straight with God. You need to free yourself by freeing your slaves, because you're in bondage to sin, to evil, when you enslave someone else. So their initial message was not particularly political. It was much more of a, as I said, a, a, a religious crusade. It was kind of proselytizing, you know, repent, for the hour of the Lord is at hand. That's the abolition movement at the beginning, and it will become a great political movement by people who openly admitted that they were religious as well as policy-driven in believing slavery to be wrong. And they and they openly admitted that their faith understandings were, were part of their views, uh, their anti-slavery views. Now, that's the 1850s and 1860s. In the 1950s and 60s, that's the second Reconstruction, and that's the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Reverend Jesse Jackson and the Reverend Ralph Abernathy. And their modern children are people like the, the Reverend Barber or the Reverend Al Sharpton. And these are openly and avowedly religious folks who are actually often arguing for equality and inclusion, including of our LGBT brothers and sisters and, um, and others. You know, I think that uh, people can become uncomfortable with viewpoints that they don't agree with being justified by religious arguments. So, for example, you see this in the abortion debate. Right, that there were articles in the New York Times about. I think uh, Linda Greenhouse wrote a column about how the uh, Dobbs decision is religiously motivated and this sort of thing, and that's the only way it can be justified or whatever. I think this is a thread that we see frequently. That that, uh, and it's true that there. I think there is a point beyond which you know the complete absence of secular considerations it becomes a problem, but. Really, what it what it comes down to in the end is what's lawful and what's not. You know, you will not see appeals to God and to Jesus or Buddha or Allah in United States Supreme Court opinions in the modern era. And 
Thank God for that. (laughs) Uh, Because, no, those opinions must be justified. Government policy um, and and judicial rulings on the basis of non-religious criteria. And they they are. So I disagree with my dear friend Linda in thinking that abortion laws, anti-abortion laws, which I oppose, I'm free free choice, uh, reproductive freedom person, but I don't believe that these laws restricting abortion can only be justified by religious or superstitious arguments. There's just a straight up scientific argument that when a sperm meets an egg, it creates 46 unique chromosomes. That's the zygote. And that's when a separate entity begins. You're no longer, because when a sperm is alone, um, it could meet any kind, any a different egg and there are all sorts of different I- individuals would result. But when one unique sperm meets one unique egg, that's a zygote. Now, there are counter arguments to that, but that didn't travel through any spiritual, uh, scriptural text or supernatural claim. I further believe so that's just on the merits analytically. I disagree with my friend Linda, who's been on the podcast, and we're doing an event together, by the way, at New York Historical Society in a couple of months. I actually was the moderator and, and asked New York Historical to invite her because there's no one that I want to talk to more. Uh, Marshall Coyle will be the third person in that conversation. I think that's going to be sometime in May. So I disagree with Linda on the merits. I think she's not being sufficiently generous and fair to folks on the other side of this abortion issue. They don't need to rely on religious grounds to justify their policy suggestions, their laws. I also, though, think it's bad politics to cut ties with all sorts of religious folk because we're going to need them you know, in all sorts of other areas. Some of them are going to be on our side in a, uh, in reproductive freedom debates, and they're going to be on our side on all sorts of other things. Issues of social justice, our duties to the poor, our duties to be good stewards of, of planet Earth, strong hostility to savage punishment in general, to the death penalty in particular, except perhaps in the most extreme cases, and, and many religious folks would say even then they're opposed to it. Strong movements for peace, and against war, there are lots of just the very blunt Catholics who uh, might be with the church on on certain issues of abortion. Many Catholics aren't opposed to the church policy, but even if they are with the church in abortion, and again, I'm on the other side, that they're going to be on the left on all sorts of other issues, as I just mentioned, death penalty, just war, duties to the poor, duties to God's creation, to the earth, and to plants and animals on the earth. Well, I think, though, that the rabbi here was making the point that, uh, just to quote it again, that she said she cited numerous instances of people citing their religious faith while targeting, for instance, and they said drag, drag queen story hours, including in New York City. So so what she's saying there is that, you know, religious faith is being cited in an exclusionary way. Right, uh, and, and religious faith has also been cited in an inclusionary right. way. And so, mm-hmm. and, but, but I was also, you also invoked Linda Greenhouse. So right. um, that was my um, own, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but th- then there were a couple more um, uh, yes. very provocative quotations in this article. Right. When I think, yeah, and I think that we're about to hear from Donna Lieberman, the executive director of the New York C- Civil Liberties Union, and she says something here, which I think you know you're going to take issue with. But then I think she expresses what 
what many of the people of faith as well as herself is, you know, I don't know what she is, but she's a lawyer, um, you know, is, uh, is worried about and who knows, but with, you can never tell with lawyers, but anyway, so she, <laughs> said, so she says, um, that she, w- she described herself on Tuesday afternoon as speechless upon hearing the mayor's remarks, quote, the mayor is entitled to his own religious beliefs or non-beliefs and the NYCLU would defend his right to hold those beliefs, Ms. Lieberman said. But as mayor, he's bound to uphold the Constitution, which provides for separation of church and state. And the separation... So stop right there. Hold on, stop right there. You know, no, it doesn't. Uh, as such, you, you actually, um, you know, you're a, evidently a lawyer because you're with the NC, NYCLU. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I've never taken the bar, but I am an expert on the Constitution, and I'm calling bullshit on you, uh, Ms. Lieberman. No, the Constitution does not provide for separation of church and state. There I said it. Right. I mean, and when we've discussed it in other on other occasions, you made what I thought what was a powerful point, which is that there were established churches and states at the founding of the Constitution. The Constitution, if anything, prevents the federal government from disestablishing those churches. So, uh, right. but so anyway, I've talked about this in a lot of my book on the Bill of Rights back in 1998, based on our articles and prominent law reviews. I just mentioned Chapter Five of America's Unwritten Constitution, 2012. The Supreme Court has cited these very passages. Again and again, so they're taking it seriously. You should too. And she goes on to say, and the separation of church and state, this is the sentence I was referring to, is essential for the mayor and everyone else in the country to be able to freely exercise their own religious or non-religious values. And I think, you know, regardless of the constitutionality or constitutional correctness of that argument, it does encapsulate some of the fear of other religious groups that that an over an overly dogmatic expression of religiosity on the part of of the mayor or you know a president or a governor um, could be interpreted as being a threat to the free exercise for, on the part of other people. Right, and Adams is saying, but what about those of us who are religious who also actually have rights? And in fact, the Constitution does talk about our free exercise rights, which include our rights to go to the beach to participate in public debates, to run for office, to hold office, and to hold office as full human beings, um, unseparated. Okay, here, here's who I'm channeling in part on this. Uh, one of my closest friends on the faculty, I, I look up to him in so many ways, and he wrote a book on this. His name is Stephen Carter. He also happens to be African-American. That that might not be a total coincidence, See that because he understands the black church and MLK and that tradition. And the book is called The Culture of Disbelief. He's the one who first you know, opened my eyes to the fact that before there was a religious right in America, moral majority, there was a religious left, the abolitionists and the civil rights uh, crusaders. And they are using religion to include. He's saying we can't lose sight of that. One little aside when Bill Clinton, a young Bill Clinton, allows um, his portrait to be painted, to be hung in Yale Law School, 
he is sitting on a stool and he's chose to actually hold a copy of a book in his hand for this painting. And the book is Stephen Carter's Culture of Disbelief. And it hangs in the faculty reading room at the Yale Law School. And I have a great picture of Clinton for the very first time ever seeing that portrait, actually, when he came to Yale for a wedding, um, for the wedding of uh, two of my dearest friends and, and protégés, Jake Sullivan, now National Security Advisor, and his brilliant and beautiful bride, Maggie Goodlander. And at their wedding, Bill and Hillary were there. And Bill is actually, I've got photos. I'll put one up of Bill Clinton looking at a portrait of Bill Clinton holding Steve Carter's book, The Culture of Disbelief. I, what I have been recounting in today's episode is Steve's argument against a super strong separation of church and state. I get that. But can you understand, though, let's say, you know, again, a, a Jewish person's worry that, um, that a, a mayor that gets up there and flaunts his own religiosity, calls himself chosen by God for this position. Um, presumably it's not the Hebrew God that he's talking about. Um, that uh, they might be worried that perhaps their own freedom of religion might be threatened in some way. And so that's why I would say, I know I probably shouldn't you know, in, invoke a scriptural phrase here, but I will at the risk of being misunderstood by their works. You will know them. You know, let's see if Mayor Adams says something and does something that actually crosses the line, then I'll criticize him. If he actually were seriously calling into question Engel and Abington, then I would be um, as one with the critics. So if that's what they were reacting to is the idea that we're going to that he was calling for return to organized, sectarian, recitational, out loud, prayer in the public schools. No, no, no. No, 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 no. You know, that's what they said. I'll add even a fifth no to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe, you see, that's what they were really reacting against. But again, they didn't write this article. Some of their quotes are being used by a, a journalist. And so we have to be careful. I have to be careful in my critique. But I am critiquing the journalist who did say... The following, I would say, incorrect thing that, well, or highly misleading thing when she when she said the Constitution language, Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof has been widely interpreted to dictate a separation of church and state. Widely interpreted by whom? There are 300 million people. There are lots of people, but but not by today's court. And not by, I would say, the the best scholars on the subject, myself, you know, immodestly included. I'm not the only one, but I would say the best scholars actually agree with me on this one. Let me mention some of their names, you know, the people like Michael McConnell on the right, people like Stephen Carter on the left. We don't quite think that that's what the Constitution means, a Jefferson's Wall of Separation. And Steve Carter writes a great book on it. And Linda Greenhouse, I want you to hear this. Bill Clinton, knowing all of it, you know, that this debate is choosing of all the books in the world to, to pose in his head. He didn't have to have a book at all. He didn't cho choose the Bible. Yes, he didn't choose Quran. He chose a book by a Yale law professor saying we've gone too far in, in a certain way. And the book happens to be, you know, written by an African-American of 
faith. Not so different from Eric Adams, perhaps, in, 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 you know, at least in that. Well, you know, you're saying, well, you know, he, the reporter wrote the article, not the people that are being quoted, but Donna Lieberman went on to write an article, and, uh, and I have it. Oh, I, I, and I, didn't, I didn't read her article, right. so, you, so you can tell me all about it. Well, so a lot of it, I think, indicates that she was quoted fairly accurately um, and, and characterized accurately in the, article, in the New York Times article. But here's what, so here's what she says. She says, let's be clear, religion is a fundamental part of millions of New Yorkers' lives, and faith has played a crucial role in many of our nation's achievements, including the civil rights movement. That's why oh, good. Freedom, yeah, just so. I, we agree. That's why freedom of religion is so important. But we are a nation and a city filled with people of many faiths and no faith. If government is going to represent all of us, it can't favor any religious belief over another. That includes non-belief. And then she goes on to talk about... I agree completely. That, that's a beautiful statement. I, I think very careful, and I agree with every word. And she says, it isn't like Adams should, be, should need to be reminded of what the First Amendment requires. He has sworn to uphold the Constitution more than once, first as a police officer, later as a state senator, and then last year upon becoming mayor. The very opening passage of the Bill of Rights makes clear that in matters of religion, the government must remain a neutral non-participant. So, it, it, I think, I think what, that's pretty. I think that's pretty close to right. Neutrality is the the idea. That's not separation. That's neutrality. It's different. Right. But what I think one would conclude about her position then is that she felt that the mayor was the government. And that he was part- not a non-participant, but a participant through his his, his comments reached a point now where of of rhetoric where he became a participant. Yeah, well, he he is the mayor twenty four seven three. He's the mayor twenty four seven three sixty five, but he's actually allowed to go to church. You see, but that's a and pri- he's still the mayor when he's at church. Yeah, but going to church is is you know. I think arguably it can be publicized, but it's a private act. This is a public speech, you know. Um, Hold on. So, so I say to you and I say to her, quote, so help me God, close quote. Okay. So that answers the constitutional question because virtually every president says that the Constitution does not say that they're allowed to say that. That's 9-0 in today's Supreme Court, and I'm taking that fact seriously. And and if she, she you know, and she needs to as well to figure out, because be, it's possible to go too far one, but also possible to go too far the other way. That's an anchoring fact in my analysis. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's where I think reasonable people might disagree is whether he went too far in his statements. Because there was, well, I think he did go too far with if he called into question Abington and and Engel. Oh my God! <laughs> wow, that's nine zero the other way. So, and, and now you see the very fine distinctions we're making here between silent prayer and, and recitational prayer, and you know, you as an individual versus you, you as a government official. And that's why, Andy, I love our podcast because these are really serious issues that we are analyzing with great precision, I believe. Well, I would say then that the Times, while I think you're right that they over 
they overstated it when they talked about there being no separation of church and state uh, and that this is a constitutional mandate. Um, nevertheless, they're performing a service because now the mayor knows how people feel about this. You know, and, and I think, you know, he, in fact, probably hasn't taken any actions other than making this ridiculous statement about guns. And uh, I think he's probably likely to watch his P's and Q's on this in the future, which is probably a good thing. So um, another aspect um, of the First Amendment, possibly uh, doing, you know, supporting, uh, supporting the, this, this part of it. And if it weren't for all of this, if it weren't for the New York Times piece, you, you know, uh, you and I wouldn't be talking about it because they brought it to our attention. And thank you, New York Times. Okay. All right. Well, so here we are an hour and a half into our podcast and we've only done step one as predicted. Um, so uh, that's good because that gives us room to, uh, you know, to talk about these things in the future. Let me, why don't we just do one question for the sake of our audience's uh, interest since we promised them one. Um, speaking of religion, it's not a religious question per se, but uh, might bear on, on it in some way. So uh, this comes from uh, Yitzi Lindenbaum. Um, and he says, first of all, he starts off very well by saying, as a lay constitutional law nerd, I really appreciate the perspective that your podcast presents on constitutional law and history. Keep it up. So well done, Yitzi. Okay. Second, um, I recognize that this is probably a bit out of your wheelhouse, but I'm wondering if you might address uh, the reforms uh, in quotes, currently being proposed to the judiciary in Israel. Um, in my opinion, his opinion, uh, there are some fascinating questions about the structure of government uh, that that are currently alive here in Jerusalem. So I take it he's writing from Israel. And I would love to hear what Professor Amar might have to say about them. I, I edited that slightly for a publication here. Thank you very much. Um, shalom. I'm a little bit diffident in general about trying to impose American constitutional ideas on other societies. And the Israel constitution is very different from the American constitution. But I think actually the great democracies can learn from each other. And we do things slightly differently. And you've already heard earlier in this episode that the French do things a little bit, you know, they're to our separationist left, and the English are to our establishmentarian right on these issues of church and state, for example. And I gave you a little bit of a sense of, you know, a tour d'horizon um, just uh, across the spectrum from Sharia law through the, the British soft establishment to America, to the harder French separation, to um, the establishment of atheism in the Soviet Union or Soviet Union. Now, Israel is a particularly interesting example on just even church state law because it has a special commitment to worldwide Jewry. It's a Jewish homeland founded with a special right of return to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, for any Jew in the world, prioritized over, you know, other refugees. We could actually, if we were in a certain reform tradition, say, you know, any, 
you know, refugee anywhere is an honorary Jew, because that's what it, what it means to be a Jew is to be persecuted. It could be construed that way. Israel is a, a special place. It's a Jewish homeland in the uh, founded in the shadow of the Shoah, of uh, the Holocaust. It also aspires to be a democratic and liberal society that's tolerant and open to non-Jews in all sorts of ways. And there's a tension there. And that tension is beautifully highlighted in a recent piece in, Andy, your favorite newspaper, um, the New York Times, just a couple of days ago. So let's put a site to that also on the, the, the website. Two things about Jewish constitutional law, and then uh, I'll tell you a little bit about Amarca's constitution's connection to all this. One is that Israel and India, by the way, they're founded almost the same moment in time, right after World War II, 47, 48, 49. They both actually in family law, the law of marriage, divorce, adoption, child custody, and the like. Both India and Israel um, have what's called the law of personal status, which means that Israel will enforce religious law as such in the family law domain. So will India, but will enforce different religious laws understood by different faith traditions and different faith communities for people of different religions. So, for example, when two Muslims, the rules governing marriage and divorce between two Muslims in India or two Muslims in Israel, that's actually governed by Islamic law. And in certain traditions, there's, for example, divorce at will, talak divorce. A man can say a word three times, talak, 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 I divorce thee, I divorce thee, I divorce thee, done. Okay, that's different, for example, than the rules of Jewish divorce, and, and there you may, you may need to get a get, and, and it's asymmetric between males and females. And if two Jews are married, the laws uh, in Israel, the laws of marriage and divorce law are governed by Jewish law. And two Christians, different rules still in both India and Israel. Now, a couple of questions. One is, what happens when you have a person of you know, um, or no faith marrying someone of another faith. So second is who decides what real Jewish law means? You know, which, which group of rabbis, you know, are actually definitive on the meaning of, of Jewish law. So these are genuine constitutional issues in Israel and India. And I've, you know, read cases about that. That's a connection to what we've just been talking about, as since we're talking about law of church and state around the world. Um, now, you asked in particular about judicial review and judicial independence and constitutionalism in Israel versus United States. Here's my general view. Big, big step back. The world can be divided into two kinds of regimes democratic regimes and non-democratic regimes. I believe democracies are better for a whole bunch of reasons. I think they are less likely to violate rights of, of individuals within the community. They're more respectful of human equality in general than non-democracies. They bring more information 
into the system. They're less likely to do egregiously wrong things than a, a closed regime in which information doesn't go up to the supreme leader. They're less likely to have famines that kill millions of people or pogroms or mass murders than a totalitarian regimes like a Pol Pot's or Mao's or Stalin's. They uh, permit an alternation um, of different parties in, in government, which isn't perfect, but at least incumbents are always worried about being thrown out, and that chastens them a bit. Kant believed that they were democracies were less likely to go to war with other democracies. He had a theory of democratic peace. So I believe democracies, for a whole bunch of reasons, are in general better than non-democracies, net-net on average. But among the democracies, I can't tell you that one form is clearly better than another, and democracies are actually divided into at least four different categories. There are regimes that have written constitutions, like the United States, and the regimes that don't, like Israel. There are presidential regimes and parliamentary regimes. In a parliamentary regime, there's no separation, a strong separation of powers. We talked about separation of church and state, separation of powers. In a parliamentary regime... The cabinet officers and the executive are members of the legislature. In America, that's prohibited. That's what we talked about before, the incompatibility clause. So some democracies are parliamentary, where the head of the executive is chosen by the legislature. Others are presidential, where the executive is chosen independently of the legislature, like the United States. Some democracies are two parties. America is a very strong two-party regime. Most other countries are not strongly two-party. Many of them are strongly multi-party including Israel, including France and, and Germany and New Zealand and, and, and many other places. And finally, some democracies have a strong federal system, others like the United States, others are strongly unitary, like France. So democracies, Akil thinks, are better than non-democracies. Among democracies, um, written constitutions versus unwritten, two-party versus multiple-party, presidential versus um, parliamentary, and federal versus non-federal. That's 16 permutations right there, and we haven't mixed, uh, tried them all. Israel does not have a written constitution quite. It did not have a moment where the people actually in some special way voted on a document binding the legislature. Israel is very different from the United States. They don't have a written constitution that was adopted popular sovereignty style by the people themselves, as distinct from the legislature. All that said, my dear friend Aaron Barak, the former chief justice of Israel, who is my very deep dear friend, tried to create a whole tradition of constitutional limitation on the legislature. And in effect, he was for Israel both John Marshall, their first early important chief justice, and as it were, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, um, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, their kind of constitutional drafting committee. He was sort of both of those things. He tried to use his perch as Supreme Court chief justice for a decade and a half to kind of create a set of precepts that would limit Knesset, limit the legislature the way in America the written constitution limits the legislature. But he did so from a judicial perch rather than via a popular sovereignty referendum-like process. 
And so it didn't have the same kind of democratic buy-in when he tried to create his constitution, his Israeli constitution, that America witnessed when we, the people of the United States, created a constitution that limited the legislature and created a very strong independent judiciary. Yeah, I think that uh, that's that's exactly right. You know, Israel, I think, tried to move towards uh, a somewhat American uh, style of democracy in the sense that um, they they wanted to have a somewhat independent judiciary, and they had these so-called higher laws, you know, which were laws that would be harder for the uh, legislature to you know override or um, so a, you know quasi constitutional uh, laws, um, and in fact the Israeli Declaration of Independence itself, um, like the American Declaration of Independence, is not actually law, but it says, let me just read one paragraph from it, it says, we declare that with effect from the moment of the termination of the mandate, blah, 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 until the establishment of the elected regular authorities of the state in accordance with the Constitution, which shall be adopted by the elected constituent assembly not later than the 1st of October, 1948. Then it goes on. So there, there was an intention to have a constitution, and it was supposed to incorporate various things that this Declaration of Independence goes on to, to talk about religious freedom and things like that. Didn't quite happen. So instead, what, what Israel has done is move a little bit more towards a British-style government with no written constitution and with these reforms, I mean, I don't know all the details of it, but it seems like the judiciary will be more subservient to the legislature than it currently is, which is the case in England, that Parliament basically gets to establish whether there's a court or not. But thanks to Tony Blair, Parliament's actually, um, in England, have been moving, broadly speaking, in the other direction in the last 30 years toward something that's a little closer to American-style judicial review, to creating a regularized Supreme Court as distinct from the law lords who were, uh, for most of um, modern British history, just a committee of the the House of Lords. So uh, being bound to, to a great extent, imperfectly, by European human rights law. I won't go into all the details about how European human rights law hasn't fully been internalized and domestic. Domesticated, but still, Parliament is, in general, very loath to um, violate European rights as understood by judges, European and, and British. So England has moved from a parliamentary system closer to American-style judicial review in certain respects. And Israel, these reforms are trying to maybe move, and Barack tried to move in some ways in an American direction, but the Netanyahu regime, for reasons explained in the New York Times, is proposing to, to move away from all of that. I don't know nearly as much about the Israeli details, probably, as our audience questioner does, but I have actually try to put the Israeli uh, situation in in the broader context of comparative constitutionalism on church and state uh, vis-a-vis India and France and and America and all the rest, 
and also to tell you a little bit about different styles of democracy, some of which are more constitutional democracies with strong judiciaries and others, not quite so much. Now, Andy, in a future episode, since this is a Marcus constitution, I want to tell our audience some fun stories about Aharon Barak and my relationship with him and his spouse, Elika, because they're dear friends of mine. And he he is the combination, really, of Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Ben Franklin, and John Marshall all rolled into one. A great man, also a great scholar, has written, I think, 15, 20 books, great scholarly books. So I'd love to tell the audience some stories about him and his relationship to someone who has been on our podcast and who is a close friend of the Baracks, Alan Dershowitz. And Dershowitz, in fact, dedicated a book on Israel. It's called The Case for Israel, and that book is dedicated to Aaron Barak, and it's all about the special role that the Israeli Supreme Court, led by Barak, has played in Israel, and Dershowitz is very laudatory of that. So I'll tell the audience a story about, to remind everyone, Dershowitz did come on our podcast earlier, and um, for all I know, listens to the podcast regularly, I, I hope so. But when he actually retired from Harvard Law School on the 50th anniversary of his being hired. He, he, he was hired at age 25. Um, I, I, at Harvard, I was at age 26 at Yale and, and people usually don't get hired that young. But for his retirement, I actually drove Aharon up to Harvard to celebrate Dershowitz's great career. And Aharon spoke and I spoke and by a video that was sent in, so did Bibi Netanyahu. And many others that I'll tell you all about. And now Bibi Netanyahu is going after the legacy of Ahron Barak. And I'll tell you some fun backstory accounts of, of all that. Lots of other interesting people were involved in that send off to Alan Dershowitz, including Barack Obama, Elena Kagan, Stephen Breyer, Larry David, and more. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of unrest now in Israel centered around these uh, judi- proposed judicial changes. And, you know, I don't, we're not going to go into it in any detail. But what I would say, though, is that it seems to me that Barack, Aharon Barak, is the personification in, of the Israeli judiciary in the minds of the world. And, oh, he's a very, very great man. Right. And also perhaps in the... And, and a good man and, and a dear friend. And um, who knows, maybe he listens to the podcast, but he's 86 years old now. And and he has in he basically, he and Elika used to spend about a month every year at Yale, typically all of September, a little bit of October. And we, every year, Vinita and I really look forward to getting together with him. But uh, just to finish the point, that that um, you know, I think that it's probably true that in the minds of many Israelis, he also is the personification of the judiciary, and that's a a, a noble figure. That uh, I'm I'm not sure if I'm Netanyahu, which I'm glad I'm not. Uh, that I would want to pick that as my uh, pick pick a fight with with a a, a legend and a, a great man, and you know. Uh, one one wonders whether if whether these reforms are necessary or not. Um, this doesn't seem like the right fight, you know. That uh, that uh, you know a uh, somewhat autocratic ruler against a great figure of democracy seems like it's a tough fight for him to win. 
And the New York Times explains the political backstory behind that, which has to do with actually certain corruption charges that have been brought against Netanyahu and the multi-party system in Israel and how he's had to change his coalition um, in certain ways. And that um, with bringing in um, different parties than the coalition that brought him to power way back when Alan had his retirement event. All of that is explained very nicely. Uh, I know I've been a little hard on some aspects of the New York Times earlier today, but very nicely in this New York Times piece, which we should link to um, in the show notes, Andy. Yes. Okay, so that's a little bit of, uh, of question and answer. Thank you, Yitzi Lindenbaum, for that, um, for that interesting question. And we've got more of those and other things coming up, as always, next week. Thank you, Akil. Thank you, Andy.